Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. The National Broadcasting Company presents... Leo the Lip, another in the series of biographies in sound, which this week was awarded a special show management citation by Variety magazine. In biographies in sound, said Variety's editors, NBC has brought a new distinction to radio, mounted with authority and infused with universal interest. Now, listen to Leo the Lip. He had uh, a great deal of personality. You might not have liked it. Some people didn't, especially in the beginning. Leo asked me if he would be given any consideration for the job of managing the Dodgers in 39, and I told him no. He's always been a scrappy type, aggressive ball player and a, and a hustler. He makes life very exciting for a newspaper man. There's always something uh, happening, always something popping. Uh, a lot of people have always asked me about a feud with Leo DeRocher, and I certainly go back to it and say that at one time there was certainly a lot of ill feeling. I get a big kick out of people who uh, wonder why I married Leo. Does anything at all, Leo's fighting hard to win. Leo DeRocher had the greatest facility in the world for making a bad situation immediately worse. This is the old Flash Frank Fresh. Those other folks are what you might call authorities on our subject. And I guess I'm an authority, too, because our subject is a baseball manager named Leo DeRocha. I've known him a long time, and I wish I had a nickel for every headache he's given me. I watched him start out as a mouthy little guy and watched him develop into what we call in sports championship caliber. I don't suppose any ball player or manager has ever pulled so much disapproval down on his own head. Cocky, truculent... Loudmouth, brawling. All these words have been used to describe Leo DeRocha. And no one was ever sued for libel for using them either. But those adjectives don't fit Leo anymore. He's the manager of a world championship ball club now. And he behaves like it. Leo was born in 1906 in West Springfield, Massachusetts. Not with a silver spoon in his mouth, though. Instead, Leo got a healthy pair of lungs, a quick tongue a quick mind, a quick pair of hands, and a jaw that jutted out, just begging you to take a poke at it. I suppose if it hadn't been for baseball, Leo might never have been much more than a small-town shoppy. He was good at pool, and they say at the age of 17 he could run 50 balls. But run from a fight? Never. Luckily, Leo played baseball well, and the game channeled his fierce competitive instinct and made it into something good. Baseball was a rough teacher. Sometimes baseball was cruel to Leo. Sometimes it was unjust. But it disciplined Leo, hammered him into shape, and though it took time, made him develop into a man. Leo was playing with Hartford of the Old Eastern League when the Yankees bought him. The Yanks kept him in the bushes a couple of years and then brought him up to play with titans like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. There was a great sports columnist writing for the New York Times then, and his name was John Kieran. I remember Leo when he first came to the Yankees. He was what you might call a, a brash youngster. Uh, you know, he's quite a talkative chap, and he was... Uh, I don't think he was much over 21 or 22. I, I am not quite sure of his real age. 
Anyhow, he came in there, I think, around 27. As a matter of fact, he came to the Yankees uh, for a cup of coffee in 25, I think, and then disappeared again and came back in 27 and stayed around for 27 and 28. And they had two or three young infielders at that time. I think Lynn Larry was one of his pals, and uh, they called Lynn Broadway, and uh, uh, they might have called Leo 7th Avenue. <laughs> Between the two of them, they were always parading up and down Broadway or 7th Avenue through the theatrical district there. He had a lot of bounce around the uh, infield. He, he could always could feel very well. But you know the story about his hitting. He was he, uh, lining out to the catcher and hitting, hitting long flies to the third baseman. He was a natural hound on a, on a ground ball. And with that bounce and speed he had, of course, he, he really covered the ground like the morning dew, as they say. Uh, he had a persistence uh, beyond his uh, playing ability at that time. Well, like Stanky and some of these other fellows that come up, they have what you call a, uh, what the baseball players call a, a take-charge attitude. When they step in, they may not be able to play as well as the other three members of the infield, but they take charge. They run the blooming works. Well, uh, Leo showed that uh, uh, attitude uh, from the very first day he showed up. He had uh, a great deal of personality. You might not have liked it. Some people didn't, especially in the beginning. But Leo's learned a good deal, you know. He's not the brash young kid that he was, uh, let's see, 28. That's uh, 27 years ago. So in 27 years, uh, a stupid fellow should learn a lot. And Leo always was a very bright fellow. And I think Leo uses showmanship to the utmost. And I think showmanship is a, is a good part of the modern game. You have to put the showmanship on now that in the old days was natural. He really belonged right in with those rough-and-tumble fellows on the field. But off the field, Leo, from the first day he hit the Yankees, wanted to be a Broadway, a big-town uh, boy. He's quite different from what he was when he first came up. He's developed wonderfully. He's had to. He's been put in authority and in places where... Uh, at dinners, he's had to make speeches. He makes a very good speech. He's a smart fellow, and he has learned uh, to better himself as he got better positions. You know, the time that he, uh, uh, the rabbit Moranville spoke to him about, uh, say, oh, you're these modern ballplayers. You don't show enough pep, he said. You know, you've got to get out there and bounce and keep going from the first minute you hit the field in the morning until they brush you off at night. He says, I was always full of bounce, go everywhere. He says, that's why they call me the rabbit. And Leo looked at him, he says, you sure it wasn't on account of them ears? In 1930, the Yankees banished Leo to the National League. He had a notorious reputation as a pop-off guy, and nobody wanted him except the last place Cincinnati Redlegs. From Cincinnati, Leo went to the St. Louis Cardinals. Strangely enough, the man who wanted this scrappy boy was a scholarly branch Ricky. I don't remember the first time I met him. It may be that I met him while he was a player, but I remember very distinctly the first time that uh, I met him in any formal manner. It was in a hotel room in New York, and uh, Mr. Sidney Weil owned uh, the uh, Cincinnati Club uh, at that time, and he brought Leo up to my room in the hotel because we had a deal on. And we did make an exchange of players, and Leo came to my club as a player, the St. Louis Cardinals. 
That introduction was a rather uh, unusual one. He was characteristically frank, if not brash, in his early remarks to me. He was not particularly anxious to play with the Cardinals, and said so, which marks uh, one of his uh, usual, customary attitudes. He is not at all uh, what you call an early diplomat in conversation. And if he's in the field of of uh, something or other in which he has a right to be opinionated, well, you will get that opinion uh, readily. As a player, I became uh, fond of him, really. He had great desire and great interest and great energy. Uh, no injury would put him out of the game. Uh, he was always ready. And he was, um, he was uh, a winning player. He wanted to beat you. And uh, he had great influence on the club because of that. There was a marked leadership in his attitude. The most remarkable thing about him as a player that I have ever uh, discovered, or that struck me most forcibly at least, was uh, the unusual aptitude of the fellow. There wasn't anything that he couldn't do, or if he couldn't do it, he would learn to do it so quickly. And uh, if there was a new thing that would help him, he wanted to take advantage of it. It was not only in the physical field that that was true, it was in the what shall I call it, the mental field, the spiritual field. He would take advantage. He was almost an unscrupulous advantage taker. He could have easily been understood to have adopted the philosophy that the end justifies the means always. For example, the rule would say that you should do thus and so. Well, there are umpires on the field. That rule is not a rule to be obeyed too voluntarily by Leo. If he missed second base on his way from first to third, he would not report that uh, minor mistake to the umpire and say, I missed the base, will you please call me out? That isn't his disposition at all. In fact, that is not a practice in the professional game. It has become almost a matter of ethics that you take advantage of all rules and uh, you get away, as they call it, you get away with, with plays... Uh, correctable only by the umpire himself. And uh, Leo would be an extremist in that direction. And uh, he might cut second base if he could get to third quicker and unobserved. <laughs> oh, wonderful sense of humor, always. He was a great practical joker. You remember that on the Cardinal Ball Club, there was a, uh, they, were, they called him the Gas House Gang, and... Uh, then they had that band uh, that went about. And in the hotels, uh, led by Pepper Martin and Dizzy Dean and Collins, and there were nine of them, they would go about uh, doing practical jokes until they became uh, quite a, uh, a pest at places and, um, and quite a charge for Manager Frisch. And he would worry about it, and sometimes they'd send for me, and I'd have to go join the club for a day or two. Well, I found out that a good many of those things that those boys did, they were put up to it, as we say, by a derocher. He would think out the things to do. And when the ladies were holding their great party in the, in the, in the rooms of the Bellevue Stratford in Philadelphia, and these boys were going about half-dressed up as repairmen with, um, with uh, aprons on and uh, uh, caps, uh, carpenter caps, and uh, big pencils in their hand, uh, moving one thing and another, and another fellow making mathematical notes. 
Well, uh, it took the house detectives to remove them, and they should never have been in there, but they caused quite a lot of consternation. Well, the fellow responsible put them up to it was Jerosher. Then, then his fun was complete when he would go and tell the house detectives what these fellows were doing so that they'd get removed. He never did take actual part in any of those depredations of the fellows, but he, was, um, he would originate them, maybe. Oh, great good humor. While Leo's with the Cincinnati Reds, oh, they were down in the cellar. That was during the years 1931, 32, and 33. It was during those dismal years that Leo formed a very fine friendship with Toot Shaw, whose restaurant in New York City is a rallying point for baseball people. I knew him when he was at the Yankees, but I got to know him well when he was at Cincinnati. He was as quick a second baseman and as quick a shortstop afterwards, later, than I ever saw. In fact... They used to call Leo Hot Potato Leo because he got rid of a ball as you would a hot potato. Leo was always a fast-talking, quick-witted fella. He uh, willing to take a chance at anything. In fact, in those days, he, he and I were both good pool shooters. I'm bragging a little bit about myself. <laughs> but uh, he could do anything he tried to do, he did well. Leo was the type of fella who always did everything quick and fast. And did it good. Leo has never been a troublemaker. Leo, the only person Leo ever hurt in his life was himself. I, mean, I don't think Leo ever intentionally hurt anyone anyone at all. What stands out in my mind with Leo is when he was with St. Louis. I think he he never has been given the recognition he should have gotten with the gas house gang. He held the team together. Though our good pal Frankie Frisch was manager and, and a good hustler on his own, I think that if he didn't have Leo at shortstop, he would never have the name of the gas house gang, even though with fellas like Pepper Martin, Dizzy Dean, and fellas, fellas of that type. Leo did it. Yeah, as if I didn't have enough trouble with that group of gentlemen known as the Gas House Gang, Providence dumps this DeRosha guy in my lap. Smiles the wide Pacific to the broad Atlantic shore. She climbs the highest mountains uphill and by the shore. She's mighty tall and handsome. She's known quite well by all. She's a combination of the Wabash Cannonball. That's Dizzy Dean singing. Maybe some of you folks haven't heard that noise before. But I heard enough of it with the Cardinals to last me a while. Of course, Leo thought differently than I did on occasion. When I was with the St. Louis Cardinals in 1934, and Frankie Fish was the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals and that famous gas house gang. As you well know, you could do things a little differently in the olden days than you can today. And going back 20 years, we were playing the final game of the World Series, and we held a meeting, as most clubs do, just before the start of the game. And as you remember, Diz got hit in the head in St. Louis, and there was a knot you could have hung your hat on it. And we didn't know who was going to pitch the final game, and as Frank was around the room and looked everyone over, he said, uh, how do you feel, Diz? And Diz said, you want to win, don't you? You wouldn't pitch any of these other bums with me sitting here. Well, all of you gentlemen who know Frankie Fresh, he come up off of that stool. About that time, Martin grabbed the guitar, and Rip Collins got the Irish potato, and Frenchy Bordegaray got a hold of some other instrument, and the first thing you know, the Mudcats were playing. And Frisch let out a bellow and over went the stool, and he says, you're fined $1,000 suspended. You're not going to pitch this ball game. And being the captain of the club, and already owing about 8000 
<laughs> I wanted to get that top prize of, in those days, which amounted to about four. And I practically on bended knees was begging Frisch to let this fella pitch. Frank says, you're crazier than he is. And he was all over me, and we exchanged a few pleasantries among ourselves. And <laughs> I made the lineup out, and I hadn't had the pitcher down there yet. And finally, he conceded to let this pitch. And I, in turn, took it upon myself to go to Diz and say, Look, I owe all this money. I want you to pitch. I feel like you do. I can't, I don't want to take a chance on any of these other Humpty Dumpties. Will you do me a favor? He says, What do you want? I said, Will you go over and sort of a left, I don't care how you do it, but give Frank a left handed apology. Tell him you're sorry. You didn't mean anything by it. So I says, all right. And so with that, Frank was putting on one of his shoes over there, you know, getting ready to go out. And Diz walks over, and I expect him to make a very fine apology. And he, Frank hadn't had his cap on yet, and Diz walked up to him and says, Frank, can I speak to you a minute? Frank says, yeah, what do you want? He says, well, Frank, he says, if you just listen to me, he says, I'll make you the greatest manager in the game. <laughs> Well, that was a great club, and, and of course, Frank gave me part of his check. I played part of second base. I was entitled to it. Well, I played about 18 years, and I must say, Leo did a tremendous job in this uh, 1934 World Series. And he did scamp around second base a little and help the old man out. And I was very thankful for it. In fact, we won the World Series, and that was the main thing. And Leo played four seasons with the Cardinals, but we finally traded him to Brooklyn and got four players for him. That was in October of 1937. Leo became captain of the Dodgers in 38, the year that Larry McPhail took over as general manager of the Brooklyn club. When I went to Brooklyn in 1938, uh, Burley Grimes was the manager and DeRocher the shortstop. I think the team finished about uh, one game out of last place in 1938. And it was apparent that uh, something had to be done. About the middle of the year, I told Grimes that uh, he wouldn't be back. And then the problem was to find someone to manage the Dodgers and replace Grimes. DeRocher came to me during the last end of the season and asked me if uh, I was going to make a change. And I told him yes, that Grimes wouldn't be back with the club. Leo asked me at that time if he would be given any consideration uh, for the job of managing the Dodgers in 39, and I told him no. He uh, asked me why, and I told him because I wasn't convinced that he could manage himself. It wasn't until very late in the fall that after considering eight or nine candidates who were available for the job of managing that I selected DeRocher. And I don't suppose that I ever made a decision in baseball over the time that I was in baseball, about 20 years, which was more generously criticized than the selection of DeRocher to manage the Dodgers. Uh... DeRocher remained with me all the time that I was at Brooklyn. And the club improved each year, and we finally 
outlasted the Cardinals to win the pennant in 41, only to lose to the Yankees in the World Series. I've often uh, been asked uh, what caused me to select uh, DeRocher, who had had no previous experience managing a major league club, uh, to head the Dodgers in uh, 39. And uh, I believe that it uh, was the careful consideration of uh, the qualities that uh, I thought he had and that he demonstrated over a period of four years that he did have uh, that led to uh, his being selected. Uh, it's generally taken for granted that Durocher knows baseball. That was apparent uh, over the years that he played baseball with the Cardinals in Cincinnati and at Brooklyn. But the things that impressed me about DeRocher was his intense love for the game and his great desire to win. DeRocher has certainly had his ups and downs in baseball and I think in, at times has been very unfairly treated. Uh, of course, he was suspended for a year. I thought probably that was the most unjust thing that was ever uh, perpetrated in baseball. He was suspended without ever having charges of any kind filed against him by anyone. He was suspended without ever having been given a hearing on any charges. And uh, after his suspension, no one knew why he was suspended and no reason was ever given for his suspension. There may have been things that uh, DeRocher did that uh, didn't meet with everyone's approval. He did a lot of things uh, that didn't meet with my approval. Uh, but uh, uh, if anyone in baseball was to be suspended for any length of time, he was certainly entitled to have written charges filed against him. And no one ever filed any charges against DeRocher, and he never was given an opportunity to answer any charges. The suspension McPhail was talking about took place on April 9, 1947. Commissioner Happy Chandler suspended Leo for the entire season. Lots of folks say it was unfair. Many say he deserved it. But no one can deny it was a turning point in Leo's career. It was a stiff dose of discipline, and Leo took it. What did the Dodgers think of Leo when he was managing them? Charlie Dresden, now manager of the Washington Senators, was working with Leo then. I did uh, coach for Leo back in 1941, 42, and won a pennant there in 41. And uh, when he first started to manage, before he managed, I, I was his coach. Larry Phil got me to come in there to help him. And he was still a playing uh, shortstop, and I did most of the work there for him, or did everything I could for him until he quit playing. He's about the same type as I am, I guess. He's aggressive, and he's a fighter, and he's always been a scrappy type, aggressive ball player and a, and a hustler. And, of course, that's the kind of a club that he's always wanted, and that's the kind of a club he's got now. Our relations was very nice, of course. Uh, I mean, while he was with the Dodgers, uh, I always liked him, and we got along great. And uh, when I left there, why... I went to the Yankees. Of course, I became the enemies then of Brooklyn, playing against them. Then I went back out the coast. Then I came back to Brooklyn as a manager, and he's with the New York Giants. Then we really did become enemies, I mean, on the field. Leo's days as a player manager ended during the war. The old story of the old-timer being crowded out by a youngster. 
Leo had to make room for the young shortstop who was going to take over in the infield. The kid's name was Pee Wee Reese. Leo was quite a guy to play for. I guess it was all boiled down. Leo probably did more for me uh, to further my career in baseball than anyone. Because when I first came up, Leo uh, could have taken me out of there and possibly could have sent me down to the minor leagues because I had a little trouble my uh, first full year in 1941, but he went right along with me and kept playing me. And uh, if he'd have sent me back to the minor leagues, it may have uh, hurt my, uh, my morale or something like that. And no, no telling, I may have never gotten back to the big leagues, but he went right along with me. And he was a great guy to play for. He took me like a, like a little boy, took me under his wing and watched me and tutored me, did a lot of things for me. Leo, being a, a pretty easy guy with me, he also was the only manager that ever find me in baseball. And I had it coming to me. Because uh, my first year up, I hit a ball that was I thought was going to be caught, and I didn't run hard all the way. And when I got back into the dugout, he says, that'll cost you $50 for not running that ball out. Well, the next day, to show you what kind of guy he is, I got a base hit to win a ball game, and he gave me $100. So uh, I came out pretty good in the fine. One of the biggest surprises in sports occurred in the middle of the 1948 season. Leo had returned to the Dodgers after sitting out his year's suspension. The widely respected and well-loved Mellot was manager of the New York Giants. The Giants were in fourth place, and a change was going to be made. But nobody expected Leo DeRocha, manager of the Dodgers, to suddenly become manager of the Giants. It was a front-page story. The man who made the decision was the Giants owner, Horace Stoneham. I'd always been a... A great admirer of Leo as a player and also as a manager. I always thought that Leo, when he had uh, his type of club, was, uh, without a, an equal, running a game. I would say that, uh, all right from the start, Leo did a remarkable job. In the fall of last year, Leo had an opportunity in a short series to pull out all the stops. He never hesitated to use his judgment, which in each case turned out to be perfect. He pinch hit early in the game. In any of the games that it was necessary to, he was never reluctant or hesitant about changing his pitchers. Horace Stoneham gave Leo the backing and encouragement he needed. Leo took some bum raps. In 1949, a fan claimed Leo slugged him and kicked him after a game with the Dodgers. It turned out the charge was untrue. The important thing, Stoneham was in Leo's corner. There were more fines and suspensions for Leo, but he was building his kind of a team. Remember 1951 and the miracle of Coogan's Bluff? In late August, the Giants were 13 games out of first place. Leo drove them hard, and on October 3rd, the Giants were battling for the pennant. It was their third playoff game for the National League Championship with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I can still remember the calm, cool, composed voice of the dispassionate and impartial Russ Hodges, broadcasting the last of the ninth. Then out, last of the ninth, back of pitches, Bobby Thompson takes a strike call on the inside corner. Bobby hitting at 292. He's had a single and a double, and he drove in the Giants' first run with a long fly to center. Brooklyn leads at 4-2. Hard time, down the line at third, not taking any chances. Lockton without too big of a lead at second, but he'll be running like the window, Thompson hits one. 
Back to throw. There's a long pass. I can't be, I believe. The Giants won the pellet. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the line back of the left field stand. The Giants won the pellet. And they're going crazy. They're going crazy. Despite the shot heard around the world and the sensational drive to the pennant, the Giants lost the World Series. The Yankees beat them four games to two. But whether he won or lost, Leo could still capture the headlines. Ask Barney Cromenko, the New York Journal-American sports writer who travels with the Giants. He makes life very exciting for a newspaper man. There's always something uh, happening, always something popping. Uh, I know this. Uh, he makes it exciting on a personal basis, too. Uh, there was one day in 1951 in the Pittsburgh press box. Leo had been thrown out of the game uh, early in the first inning, and about the third inning, he came up to the press box to join us, and he was sitting next to me. And before I knew it, I was giving signals from the press box. Since that time, they no longer allow managers to come into the press box at any time. And so I no longer can be a coach. But for that one day, it was a lot of fun and a lot of excitement. You are listening to Leo the Lip, another NBC biography in sound. We'll continue after a 10-second pause for station identification. We continue now with biographies in sound. And Leo the Lip. And once again, here's the old flash, Frankie Frisch. The game of baseball hurled many a challenge at Leo DeRocher. For example, Leo was the first major league manager to tackle the problem of the Negro player. Jackie Robinson came to the Dodgers while Leo was manager. There were differences between the two men. But I think they were just that, differences between two men. It was not racial. Both Jackie and Leo had the same problem. They had hot tempers, which had to be kept under control. Then, when Leo went to the Giants, the two men became natural antagonists. Well, Leo and I, uh, when he played ball, uh, when he managed our ball over in Brooklyn, uh, naturally we were very, very close. Uh, I've always uh, gotten along well with every manager that I've ever played for, and that goes for Leo DeRoser also. Uh, when he left the ball club, went over to the polo grounds, there was a little ill feeling up until 1951. And then uh, we went to the All-Star game when he managed the game. And uh, since then, I think our relationship has been as good as they can be, considering the fact that we're on opposite ball clubs. Uh, a lot of people have always asked me about a feud with Leo DeRocher, and I certainly go back to it and say that at one time there was certainly a lot of ill feeling. But that has all been ironed out, and uh, I'm happy to say now that uh, Leo and I are as close of friends as we possibly can be. Color doesn't mean much to DeRocher. What counts with him is playing ability. He came up with a player named Willie Mays. I'd like to tell you a little story. Uh, my name uh, was uh, flashed over the screen. And it would say, Willie Mays report to the hotel. I said, for what? I said, well, I don't know about the hotel because it's the first time I've been to Susie, Iowa. So I, I arrived to the hotel and everybody was shaking my hand. I was, got to wondering, what are you shaking my hand for? <laughs> I'm not going nowhere. They said, yes, you're going to the majors. I said, for what? He said, to play ball. 
I said, I, I got to stay here. So Tommy Heath, the manager at that time, said, well, you better go. Leo's calling for you. I said, I'd like to talk to Leo. He said, well, okay. He got Leo on the phone. Leo said, well, uh, would you like to come to the major? I said, no, I don't want to come. He said, so why? I said, I don't think I can play major league ball now. He said, well, what are you coming on? And uh, then he asked me a question. He said, well, uh, what are you hitting now? I said, 477. He said, gee, that's... <laughs> You think you can hit about 240 or 250? I said, well, I'll try. I think I can hit that much. He said, well, you come on anyway. So uh, him and Tommy talked for a little while. He said, well, now you've got to put Willie in third and put him in center field. I said, well, that was great. So I arrived in Philadelphia on a Friday. And true enough, I was in center field in third. But you know one thing? Robert Roberts pitching that night. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at that time, I didn't, I didn't know who he was, so I didn't care. <laughs> so Leo said, well, you go and play center field. I said, okay. So uh, five times up and five times down. Jeez. <laughs> Leo said, that's all right. Shake my hand. We won, though. Eight to two. Okay. So the next, next day, in center field, hitting third, Craig Simmons pitching the next day. <laughs> Still, I didn't know nothing about him. It's all right with me. Who's pitching? So same thing. Five times up, five times down. So Leo did say again. Well, he's shaking my hand. We won again. Okay. So the next day, same thing happened. Say, I think it was Weedmire was pitching. Same thing. Five times up, five times down. Nothing happened. We won still. But I was getting a little worried, you know. I said... <laughs> <laughs> I've been here three days and no hits, you know. I was, well, I don't think I can play this ball. So I, we was playing uh, Boston, which is uh, Milwaukee Braves now. And uh, so uh, I was in the clubhouse crying. And so well, I said, well, Leo, I said, well, uh, I don't think I can play this kind of ball. I said, you better send me on back down to the miles. So he said, well, he said, well, uh, all you got to do is catch it. We'll do your hitting. <laughs> So I like to say, I like to thank Leo for the encouragement that he really gave me in making me the ball player I am. There was another player that Leo corralled. Leo told the story at the baseball writers' dinner in New York. He was introduced by Lou Efrat of the New York Times. Gentlemen, I give you the manager of the world champion New York Giants, a genius from Beverly Hills, California, Leo DeRocher. Thank you, Lou. Distinguished guests, gentlemen. I don't think there's any question about here with all these gentlemen here that I am a genius. <laughs> but I would like to talk about, and I've made about 8,000 speeches, it seems like, this winter, but I have my secret weapon here with me this evening. And it's not Willie Mays. It's Dusty Rhodes. Now, if you gentlemen will go back with me just a little bit into the fall of 1953, the New York Giants made a goodwill tour to Japan. And 
about 21 or two players made the trip. Mr. Stoneham was along, and one of the players was Dusty Rhodes. And as you all know, in Japan, they're baseball crazy. They have screens and sticks set up on every corner, and they're just mad for the game of baseball. And we arrived there on a Thursday to play Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Krakian Stadium, sold out 65,000 people. 9.30, Friday morning, Lorraine and I come down to the lobby, the Imperial Hotel. The first one I run into, Rhodes. <laughs> I said, are you coming or going? <laughs> hey, summer, I skip. I said, the bus leaves in an hour. We got a ball game to play. He said, I'll be all right. <laughs> Just hit three home runs that afternoon. <laughs> I got worried about it. Knew we had a pretty good ball club, young club, and I got sort of worried about this guy. I didn't know Dusty too well. I never did forget it. And got the spring training, and I kept after Mr. Stoneham. Get rid of this fella. I want to show you how much of a genius I really am. <laughs> I put it in writing. Get him off the club. I don't want him on here. He can't do nothing. Every time a fly ball goes up, God forbid he gets tangled up with it, he's going to get killed someday out there. <laughs> Nobody would take him. Thank the Lord. And during the middle of the summer, we were playing Brooklyn, that important series where we defeated them six straight. <laughs> and on the very first ball game in the Polar Grounds, the ninth inning, Brooklyn had us beat one run, bases loaded, two outs, ninth inning. I called for my secret weapon. And he proceeded to single the center, and the game is over. We're in the clubhouse, congratulated, everything's in great order. The next day, tenth inning. I'm behind again one run. I had already used one catcher, and I believe Western was the hitter. I had no catcher left. Rhodes for Western. Boom. Single. Game's over. <laughs> Newspaper men said, what would you have done for a catcher? Rhodes heard him. He says, you don't think I'd leave the skipper on that spot, do you? <laughs> So I couldn't sleep that night, and I got thinking about this fellow. He's hitting the ball so good, and one of the most likable guys in baseball, Monty Irvin, was having a little tough time at the plate, and I thought I'd play Dusty the next day. So I did. I put him in left field, and, you know, Rhodes calls me everything but DeRocher or manager. Every other name under the sun, he calls me. <laughs> Wants to know why he isn't playing. Greatest hitter in the world. So I played him. I'm coaching at first base, Herman Frank's at third, seventh inning. Have Brooklyn beat a couple of runs. I got two men on, first and second, nobody out. I want to steal a run or two, so I give the bunt sign to Herman Frank's at third base. Rhodes is up there, he's going to hit in, looking for no bunt, you know. <laughs> so Herman whistles, and he comes out of the box, and Herman gives him the bunt, and he, me, bunt? He's looking, you know. <laughs> so he looks at me, I said, don't look at me, he'll give you the sign, bunt. So he lays down a perfect bunt. As most runners do, they go by first base 20, 30 feet and go around in the dugout. He just touched first base, stopped right there. Come right over to me, he said. You may be right, he says. You may get those runs, but if you let me hit, I'd have got you three. We've taken a long look at Leo DeRocha, the baseball player and baseball manager. But what kind of a fellow is he when he leaves the polo grounds? Here's Tut Shore again. 
He's the most affable man that's in sports. Leo DeRocher is a fellow who can mix up any kind of company, talks to anyone, and is very kind to everyone off the field. I can't say that about him on the field, but off the field, he's as nice a guy as a fellow would want to meet. On the field, if he's against you, you just dislike him immensely. In the last five or ten years, Leo's gotten mellow. Leo's changed quite a bit to the umpires. I mean, he's a fellow. He now realizes that he's more important on the bench than he is in the clubhouse. That took a little age to do that. Leo's a fellow that jumped at least a little thing, and he's a fighter. He means it. He means the fight. It's just, if you play cards with Leo, Leo plays cards the same way he plays a ball game. He fights for everything. He's growling and fighting. If he shoots pool, if he does anything at all, Leo's fighting hard to win. He was always a dandy little guy. He, I guess Leo, when he had a dollar on his ten dollars in his pocket, he'd go for clothes. And he was always one of those. He was a snow in the snappy dressers in baseball. Today he sort of likes himself a lot, you know. If he only only trouble Leo only trouble Leo has, he wish he could have hair. Then why he'd be then he would look great. But he's a fellow who's always been dapper and neat. And on a baseball field, you notice the Rocher's the only baseball manager ever saw shoes or shine. Uh, he's a fellow who likes the kid, and he likes to be kidded. And I'll say, hi, you crummy bum, if he wins. If he loses, I use a stronger word. His favorite expression to me, I always know who's on the phone. I hear a guy say, hello, whale belly. I know that's DeRocher. There is another side of Leo's personality we haven't explored yet. He may be hail fellow well met with the boys. But what does he like at home? Top expert on that, of course, is Mrs. DeRocher, Lorraine Day. I get a big kick out of people who uh, wonder why I married Leo, because they believe that uh, Leo is the man that they read about in the newspapers and, and uh, that they see at the ball game striding out of the dugout or getting into an argument with umpires. And uh, it was a great shock to me when I met Leo, because he is completely opposite, personally, to the impression you get from uh, the newspapers and seeing him and from seeing him on television. He has um, a tremendous sense of humor. He's very warm and gracious to everyone. Uh, when he walks into a room, he dominates it. He's a gentleman with a, with a tremendous um, magnetism about him. People ask me, uh, how is it when he loses a ball game and he comes home? Well, Leo never brings the game home. He has, uh, I take it much harder than Leo does. I guess he's been in it a lot longer than I have, but uh, he leaves the game at the ballpark, and he's uh, very nice about my second guessing, because I second guess him all the way home, and he doesn't lose his temper. And, you know, I didn't know a thing about baseball until I married Leo. I had never seen a ball game. It, it was very interesting, because before we went to spring training, just listening to Leo... I knew all about all the players and felt as if I knew them personally and knew the game before I ever saw it. Now, when Leo comes home after losing a tough game, if we have a dinner date for that evening, it's automatically canceled. Not because he is blue and depressed and moody about losing the game, but because if we go out, people always come up to him and say, well, how did you lose it? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you pitch this person? And... Uh, when we win a game, everyone just says, congratulations, nice game. They never ask you how you won it. They always ask you how you lose it. And so he just doesn't like to have to explain and explain and explain all evening where the mistakes were made or, or what went wrong. So 
we just automatically cancel all dinner dates when a game is lost or any engagements for the evening. And Leo comes home, and he likes to watch television, and he reads a great deal. It's sort of hard to explain him because he isn't the excitable, volatile character that he is on the field when he comes home. He doesn't discuss baseball very much unless we have uh, friends over or people are here that want to discuss baseball, and then he will go on and talk all night if they want to. There is one case I'd like to tell you about with Leo. You know, this comes about from people saying, oh, since Leo married Lorraine, she's changed him. He's a softer man. He doesn't uh, get into these fights. Well, this is a little story about an exhibition game with the Brooklyn Dodgers in Miami. And there was a certain umpire that I was sure had made five bad decisions the previous season that had cost us five games. And I just couldn't stand this umpire. Well, at this exhibition game, it didn't mean a thing. But this umpire was uh, umpiring at first base, and he called Bobby Thompson out on a double play when the first baseman was off the bag five feet. Well, I was so livid, I jumped up behind the uh, dugout, and I started screaming at this umpire. And Leo came out of the dugout, and he turned around, looked at me, and put his hands on his hips, and he says, For heaven's sakes, he says, will you sit down and shut up? <laughs> Which is quite a switch to the guy that I'm supposed to have changed. Leo's Giants won the World Series last year. They beat the Cleveland Indians four straight. And Leo was toasted across the nation as a great manager. He attended testimonial banquets, and he gave speeches. Good ones, too. This is not the brash young man who came up to the Yankees, nor the fellow who hustled with the gas house gang, nor the umpire-charging manager of the Dodger days. What do you call it? Growing up? Maturing? Here's Alvin Dark, captain of the world champion Giants. I think that, that he is definitely the best manager in baseball. Uh, he's the type of manager that if you have something to say to him, you say to him, and in return, he will tell you what he thinks. He doesn't hide anything from you, and he doesn't want you to hide anything from him. So we work as men and not as boys with a man. We all work together. Uh, he gets the type of ball club he wants and doesn't let outside influences bother him at all. Therefore, he goes with what he thinks best off the field and on the field. You think you know a lot about the game, and you think you know how it should be managed, and you think you know each individual on your club. But I have found out in the last year of 1954, throughout the whole club and the 25 ball players, the Alvin Darks and the Whitey Lockmans and the Williams and the Westrams who, who come to the ballpark every day, I have been taught one thing, that when you put 25 players together, whether... If you can make them believe this, I don't say that all managers can, and I don't say that I have accomplished that. But I sincerely believe that if you can make 25 players as a unit believe that the man that they are playing for is the greatest manager, is the best manager, that whenever he says bunt, that's the right thing to do. Whenever the manager gives the hit and run, that is the right thing to do. Whenever he says steal, that is the right thing to do. I know that when you can get 25 players to believe that the manager never makes a mistake, I think you then become championship caliber. 
Leo DeRocha has done a tremendous job. He has won possibly all the laurels a man can win in baseball. What are his thoughts now? It has always been my dream to someday be connected, to be part of a, of a team, to be manager of it. I've been on clubs that have won pennants, but I've always dreamed of being a manager of a club that won the world's championship. Had no idea whatsoever that we would defeat the Cleveland Ball Club four straight, believe me. But felt very confident that this was the year that the National League were going to be the world's champions. The determination and spirit of the players in the club just seemed to exuberate, and Willie, of course, was rubbing it off on the other players. And with a fellow like Rhodes who believed that he was the greatest hitter in the world, whether he is or not, he believes he is. And when you send him up that plate with a bat, how do you feel? Get a hold of one, hit one, Jim. Are you all right? He says, I'm all right. It's the pitcher that's worried. <laughs> They were great all summer. They were great during the series. Everything we did was right. Everything that the Cleveland Club did was wrong. We got all the breaks, all the good ones, and they got all the bad ones. It was a case of one club being up and the other club being down. I am deeply grateful to the 25 players on the New York Giants that made the dream come true. No one, perhaps, has ever analyzed the personality of Leo DeRocher, the character of the man, as well as Mr. Branch Rickey. Not very many people are more intelligent uh, than Leo DeRocher. And when it comes to the judgment of players, perhaps uh, not only baseball players, but perhaps men in other fields, this thing called intelligence is a, is a, is a, f a fine qualification. It, it's something to have. And I, I think in our estimates of players, generally, uh, we don't give it the position it ought to have in the general all-over qualities uh, that make up a good ball player. He was highly intelligent. Uh, in the course of years in the game, he was well-liked by the other players on the club because he was a contributor. He never saved himself. He never tried to take something that belonged to somebody else in the way of credit, in the way of uh, praise, newspaper comment. He was generous in his uh, commendation of uh, fellow players on his own team. As a uh, manager, much can be said pro and con. If uh, Leo were the manager of a tail-end ball club like Pittsburgh, for instance, he would not be very happy. And he would not permit very much happiness to be around him either. He is not an easy loser. He is terribly undone if he's defeated. He can't stand it not to have victory. When that game starts, there is no tomfoolery in his system anywhere, nor do he permit any any place. Oh, if something ridiculously funny would happen on the field, he could laugh with anybody. But he isn't going to perpetrate any, any so-called humorous things on the field while his game is on, not with him, manager. No, sir. He is, first of all, no respecter of persons. That's a great qualification of a manager in my book. And second, he is, um, he is a good handler of men. Carrying that remark into a case of difficulty, 
I mean uh, what they called in, Rub- in, in Brooklyn a rhubarb, where there is um, uh, trouble with the press or, uh, or a feud uh, situation on the club. Um, oh, I didn't mean that he could handle men in that case. I was one time quoted as saying uh, that um, Leo DeRocher had the greatest facility in the world for making a bad situation immediately worse. Well, I was not misquoted. Uh, He will avoid bad situations. Uh, He will make men play their best. He will make men um, uh, do right instead of wrong. He will keep men in good physical condition. He will hold up before them the plains of Italy as a, as a prize to be gained. And he does it without having the background of early uh, organizational responsibilities. He, uh, he is not a college graduate. He is uh, not at all a man who was brought up in any sort of academic fashion in the literary fields. Not at all. Uh, he's developed in that regard. More than most boys I know... He has come to be a reader of good books and good magazines and good material. That's quite unusual in a fellow who is uh, primarily interested in physical work. Baseball is that. If ever a man is pretty largely, and in a, in a commendable fashion, I say it, uh, largely a self-made man, uh, it's Leo DeRocher. Then, too, there is another thing about him that I, I like very much. He has the greatest faculty in the world for having children loving. I tell you, I don't know anyone ever to be in my acquaintance who could make friends and come indeed to like a a child quicker and more ardently and more really than Leo DeRocher. He is so genuine in it that they know it and they, they respond to it. And uh, all you have to do is just put a small child in a room, and there'll be a dozen people in there, and before very long, that child and Leo will be companions. That's uh, an absolute fact, and that's a wonderful thing to say about anybody. Don't you think so? You have just heard Leo the Lip, another transcribed biography in sound. An appraisal of Leo DeRocher, manager of the world champion New York Giants. Written by Pat Tracy, edited by Chet Hagen and John Kieran Jr. This program has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Services for our troops overseas. We want to thank all of you for the fine mail response and wish we could answer all of it. But keep telling us whether you like the series and about the people you'd like to see us do in Biographies in Sound, produced by NBC News. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.